Hello and welcome to Understanding Autism Podcast, where we talk about the issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse communities. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. In today's episode, we're going to talk about understanding what autism is. We're also going to talk about what autism is not, as in what kind of stereotypes and stigmas there are about autism. Lastly, we'll talk about recognizing autism in children versus adults. So, Brett, what is autism? All right, so this comes from three different groups or definitions. One is from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Another source is Autism Speak. And lastly is WebMD, which as a parent, this is what I went to when I was trying to figure out what was going on with my son for sure. All right, for the CDC, defines autism as a developmental disability caused by differences in the brain. People with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, often have problems with social communication and interaction, and restrictive or repetitive behaviors or interests. People with ASD may also have different ways of learning, moving, or pay attention. And this is interesting that from a 2018 study, they determined that autism impacts one in 44 children. From Autism Speaks, uh, they define it as a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, speech, and nonverbal communication, most influenced by a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Ways in which people with autism learn, think, and problem solve can range from highly skilled to severely challenged. And some people with ASD may require significant support in their daily lives, while others may need less support and in some cases can live entirely independently. And lastly, with WebMD, and I saw this in my son, all of these categories, uh, the categories are communication challenges, social preferences, and behavioral markers. So the communication challenges are identified as delayed speech and language skills, repeating some phrases, not responding appropriately or at all to verbal or nonverbal social cues, and trouble expressing needs or emotions. Social preferences, referring to be alone instead of interacting with others. Avoiding eye contact, not understanding emotional cues from themselves or others. And behavioral markers, such as stimming, pacing, fixations on certain activities or objects, extreme sensory sensitivities, messy eating habits, for sure, I saw that, impulsiveness, aggressive behavior towards themselves and others, and short attention spans. Thanks for sharing that. So the Autism Self-Advocacy Network definitely takes uh, a different approach that isn't so focused on the medical view of autism. On their website, they say autism is a developmental disability that affects how we experience the world around us. Autistic people are an important part of the world. Autism is a normal part of life and makes us who we are. It has always existed, whether we're diagnosed or not. Anyone can be autistic regardless of race, gender, or age. There is no one way to be autistic. Some autistic people can speak and some autistic people need to communicate in other ways. Some autistic people also have intellectual disabilities, and some autistic people don't. Some autistic people need a lot of help in their day-to-day lives, and some autistic people only need a little help. All of these people are autistic because there is no right or wrong way to be autistic. All of us experience autism differently, 
but we all contribute to the world in meaningful ways. I do want to point out that what I really like about this description is that it really captures that autism is a spectrum. But additionally, we continue to be very limited in our understanding of what autism is. When I was diagnosed with autism in 1993, the perspective of what an autism spectrum was is so different than how we define autism as a spectrum today. And 30 years from now, we may see the autism spectrum in an even more nuanced way than we see it today. What I really like about this description is that it doesn't feel uh, limiting or put in a box of what it means to have an autistic experience. I think that's the other important. thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important because, um, as you just said, there's so many different ways that we have come to understand autism over the years. I know when I was first introduced to autism um, as a teaching candidate way back in the 90s, our our understanding has jumped light years from then. Yeah, definitely. So the Autism Self-Advocacy Network continues to say that what every autistic person has in common is that we think differently, we process our senses differently, we move differently, we communicate differently, we socialize differently, and we might need help with daily living. And that, again, is also a spectrum um, based on a lot of different factors. Now, I think that this is also really important to bring up. If you are listening to our podcast on our website, which is understandingautism.info, you will see an image that I made. It's a black and white drawing. Um, and it has the logos for autism, um, one of which is the puzzle piece. The other is a symbol for neurodiversity. The other thing that you can see on our website is a tab called Poems. Um, what I like to do to promote our podcast episodes is writing poems that describe each autistic experience. And episodes two poems are exactly based on these six traits that the Autism Self-Advocacy Network describes with what every autistic person has in common. I'm not gonna read this poem on our podcast, you are more than welcome to read the poem on our website, and I will also be posting readings of these poems on our social media platforms. Very cool. So, Very cool. yeah, yeah. So, following that up, autism spectrum is a part of this grander label called neurodiversity. But what exactly is neurodiversity? The reason I bring that up is because autism might be a familiar term, neurodiversity might not be. The dictionary defines neurodiversity as the range of differences in individual brain function and behavioral traits regarded as part of normal variation in the human population used especially in the context of autism spectrum disorder. And fun fact, the term neurodiversity was coined in 1998 by autistic sociologist Judy Singer. It builds on the social model of disability in which disability arises out of societal barriers interacting with individual differences rather than people being disabled simply as a result of having impairments. I wanna kind of revisit some things I shared in episode one. Um, so if you're new to our podcast, I kind of talked about the origin of my autism diagnosis. I was diagnosed in 1993. That was the year before Asperger's syndrome was introduced, which, kind of held the belief 
that autism is a spectrum. There's severe needs and there's mild, moderate needs. And then let's see, so 93, five years later after I was diagnosed, the term neurodiversity was introduced. And somewhere in between, Temple Grandin published her book, Thinking in Pictures. And so what I find interesting is sort of the mid 90s was really when a lot of this information and understanding of what autism and neurodiversity is really kind of came into the forefront. So kind of reflecting on everything we just talked about, Brett, how do you think all of these resources we talked about see autism in a common way? Well, the first three that I mentioned was a lot of observable behaviors, right? And so autism is being, you know, the, if you're on the spectrum or if, if you have a child that's on the spectrum, you're gonna see these typical things, uh, these kind of behavioral markers, uh, communication issues, those kinds of things. So it's kind of an outward looking in as opposed to inward looking out kind of perception of what autism is. Mm -hmm. Are but, there any biases? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. So the so the biases then go into um, it's clinical. It's a clinical kind of bias. It's not um, like you were reading uh, from an an internal. I have autism. This is what I believe. This is this is. Um, so all of the things that I read was it's a it's a clinical kind of thing, and it's um, A to B to C kind of how do you treat it? Mm -hmm. you, Nicole, yeah. What did you notice? Um. I think going back to bias, that's the biggest thing I notice is that when there is a credible medical organization or autism support group that's mainly led by neurotypical allies, the definition of autism is very clinical. It really focuses on the medical model of disability. It focuses on the struggles. And I will say if I look back to when I was diagnosed, there is a lot more of a humanizing description of autism uh, it, from those resources compared to back then. But even so, those descriptors and immediate identifiers uh, really talk about behaviors and thought processes. And it's very, as you said, very clinical. And Comparing that to the Autism Self-Advocacy Network, as well as, you know, thinking about Temple Grandin's body of work, um, Judy Singer's work, and other uh, prominent autism advocates that are out there, I do feel like when autistics speak for themselves, they really talk a lot about the social model of disability. They talk about uh, a really humanistic approach of what autism is and really seeing it beyond the label of something that is a problem and needs to be fixed. What I do think that they all have in common is I think that we there is an acknowledgement that people with autism need help. Um, if I look back on what the Autism Self-Advocacy Network says about autism, we do a lot of things differently compared to neurotypical people. And, you know, that difference might be gifted and talented. It might be more of a struggle. It might be more neutral. I think the fact that that term differently shows up really indicates that we view the world differently and adjusting to a world that isn't built for us requires a bit of support. And the biggest thing that really stands out to me is the, the bullet point that says we might need help with daily living. 
And I think that a lot of these resources uh, not only try to create community with that validity of, you know, this is what autism is, but it's also coming to the understanding that people with autism need support. People who are neurotypical in association with an autistic person also need support. So that to me feels like a really resounding theme between all four of the resources we looked at. And the other thing is that as we talk about on this podcast, how to navigate certain social interactions that are so common in the workplace, right? It's helpful to have that understanding of, okay, if, if we know that somebody who's on the spectrum, who's actually in the workforce, these are things that we can do to help make communication a lot easier in the business community, which is such a common thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I also want to share in terms of some biases I'm noticing between the different um, terms. Again, in having this conversation about bias, it doesn't necessarily mean that one definition is better than the other, more superior. It just means that multiple perspectives can talk about autism in different ways. In my opinion, I think medical def definitions of autism get to the point quickly about what autism is and lists identifying characteristics, which can be really helpful for getting a diagnosis, especially um, if you are a parent of a young child. But autism is so much more than a disorder or a disability, which these websites commonly talk about. So the Autism Self-Advocacy Network talks about autism in a more humanizing way, which can make getting a diagnosis and accepting autism in someone's life a little bit easier. Judy Singer also focuses on cultural obstacles and barriers that impacts a person with autism rather than taking on a medical bias, which supports the metaphor that autistic people are square pegs trying to be shoved into a round hole. In other words, autistic people being forced into fit into a neurotypical culture. Okay, and then that goes into, again, like we talked about, there are ranges of autism, the spectrum, right? And the spectrum really has been kind of condensed into this idea of mild, moderate to severe. Um, as opposed to having more nuanced approaches with Asperger's that we're going to talk about in a second. But so if we talk about what mild is, then the autistic person has some um, some social emotional challenges and some sensory instructor and struggles, but they're not necessarily impacted uh, or it doesn't impact their adult independence. Moderate, again, you have those same social emotional um, challenges and other challenges, but um, there might be with some therapy or other things that can lead to some independence or ongoing um, assistance. And then we get to the severe end of the spectrum, which was the only thing that they taught us in, in teaching school, which was the significant special needs resulting in daily caregiving and an inability to live as an independent adult. Mm -hmm. And we want to clarify that we're intentionally using the terms that school caseworkers use for an IEP instead of the terms high functioning and low functioning, which is probably what a lot of parents hear when they think about where on the spectrum a person with autism lands. So a lot of adult autism advocates, both verbal and nonverbal, really try to sway people from using those labels high functioning and low functioning. Reason being is that a person with nonverbal autism can be very high functioning mentally, but
but have severe physiological challenges. This has been a case made by a lot of adults with nonverbal autism. There's also a lot of stigma around those terms. And even people with mild autism can feel hurt by reaching the standard of being high functioning. That term has a lot of baggage with being assessed as normal or as neurotypically passable. And that, that brings us to the, the movement um, in the 90s that you were talking about earlier about how to subdefine or subcharacterize different elements of, of autism. This, this began with um, Hans Osberger, who was one of the first neurotypical pioneers to study autism, and it became kind of this hallmark definition from 94 to 2013 in the American Psychiatric Associations and their Diagnostic Statistical Manual, how they could say, okay, this is this particular thing and this is how we're defining it. But from this day on, or from 2013 on, it's really been incorporated into more of a uh, looking at autism as a spectrum disorder and not one particular subset of things that can be defined. Mm -hmm. Autism is also linked to PDD, NOS, which is also called pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. This diagnosis was given to somebody that had some traits of autism, but not all of them. And I also want to add that I've met people who have had PDD, NOS, and I guess I went in with maybe a stereotypical assumption that people with PDD, NOS maybe had more severe needs, but that is not true. Um, there are a lot of mild, moderate um, need people who have PDD, NOS, and so PDD, NOS exists on a spectrum just like autism does. So... Brett, do you know why some people with autism get diagnosed as a toddler or kid and why others are diagnosed as a teenager or adult? Well, I, I believe that um, most of the time, especially from a parent point of view, is those observable behaviors and those milestones, right? So as, as parents, when we're having that conversation with our pediatrician about our child, we bring up milestones, you know, what, you know, in the developmental process, you know, your, your a typical child is going to be speaking by this, potty training by this date, those kinds of things. And what we see is that our child is delayed in one or more of those aspects. And that certainly happened in my experience. So if we think about um, autism diagnosis in children, typically it can be as early as 18 months, but it could also go through the uh, preschool years to kindergarten, which really manifests those social awkwardness and those those miscues and that was certainly true with my, of my child so then what we did is that okay so we had this conversation and suggestion that your child might have autism and so now we're going to um, the way to, to look at those milestones and to see you know what the discrepancies are and then um you know that led us down a pact of of going to you know um psychologist or psychiatrist to try to try to get some some help for Josh but if autism is not caught when a child is a toddler then what might be happening is that this is kind of more of a mild case and this again uh, things can manifest as themselves later on like in middle school years or high school years especially when there's like a transition so we know that um, people on the spectrum really 
have a challenge with big, huge transitional life transitions. And this can happen from one grade to the next, but it also can happen from one school to the next. Like for Joshua, it was definitely a super challenge from elementary school where he finally had, you know, six years to figure things out to middle school. That was a huge transition. A lot of adjustments had to happen. And then from middle school to high school, another set of transitions. So these were things that we had to think about um, along the way for sure. Now, as we move into autism and teens into adults, a person with autism can be diagnosed um, as a preteen, teen, or young adult, but this is usually considered a late in life diagnosis. And like I said, some people who are um, on the mild end of the spectrum might have coping skills to, to really kind of address some of the things that they were impacted by. And so these behaviors really don't manifest themselves until later. So if sensory struggles aren't super obvious, then autism might show because of that social emotional challenges, especially if we get into group situations and settings, executive functioning issues and strong attachments to order or routine. As school gets harder, um, that might be another way that things get frustrating and, and, and those other concerns get manifested. Um, and so that's when that diagnosis might occur. Some people, including autistic adults, might in, misinterpret autism as um, super shyness or socially being awkward and not really wanting to go into social settings where there's a lot of unknowns or there's a lot of risk. They might see that there's like some risk and I, I wanna avoid those kind of behaviors. People might not come to the conclusion of having autism if they don't struggle with meltdowns or the classically autistic self-harming behaviors. Mm -hmm. I also try to think about, you know, what are the reactions to an autism diagnosis? If you get diagnosed earlier in life, what I've noticed is there's a lot more fear and grieving around autism. There's a fight to normalize or cure it, and there's pressure to mask or act normal. Yet when you're diagnosed later in life, there's this relief, elation, understanding how the brain works, empowerment leading to better self-advocacy and better relationships, and finding people just like them. So it's always made me really fascinated to reflect on why is there so much fear around a diagnosis for both you know, children and parents when it comes earlier in life Whereas later in life, there's this feeling of, yes, I got the answers. Now I understand myself better. If you're a parent, you understand your child better. There's this relief of just finally having an answer for everything that's going on. Sometimes ad adults diagnosed later in life have to deal with the struggles of coming out to their parents about being autistic. Some parents are accepting and some continue to be in denial. And denial can look like a lot of things. Um, sometimes it is straight up denial. Other times it can be uh, that that need to cure or it might look like that the autistic person needs to be sort of the I ideal savant, uh, a gifted and talented autistic person. Um, and then the other ways I know for me personally, and I don't wanna say my parents were in denial, I think they were more living under the belief that my autism was cured, when I started having struggles as an adult and started being open about it, my parents would say, well, I thought we were past this. And I think that that denial wasn't deliberate in terms of not accepting me. It was more that if you're taught that the only way to 
perceive autism is by seeing it as a disorder that needs to be cured. You can be in denial that autism is something that is with you the rest of your life and affects you as an adult. I think the ideal goal of looking at a diagnosis is more acceptance and more empowerment about receiving an autism diagnosis rather than living in fear of it, regardless of how old you are and regardless of whether you know you were the person being diagnosed or you are a caregiver being a part of that person's life. So speaking of diagnosis, Brett, how do you get an autism diagnosis? Well, again, the, the, the route that we went through was it's a pretty typical route for most parents. There's um, some identifiable behavior patterns that are emerging as the um, child is preschool, um, going into school, or even, you know, like we talked about that 18 months to six year window. And then it was a conversation with a pediatrician. And then from that, it was a referral to a psychiatrist. And so that all took place. And, and for, you know, if I could talk about our own experience real quick, um, the, the autism diagnosis, I thought when we first heard it from, actually it was, it was observed behavior by um, a preschool teacher. You know, she said, your, your child is having meltdowns and it's taking a long time for us to calm him down. And some of us have to walk him around this gymnasium by himself, you know, with him um, just to calm him down. And, and we think he might have autism. I, that first reaction as a parent was fear of unknown. We, did, we just didn't know enough of what autism was to be able to know what it would take for us to help our child. So having that knowledge and, and getting, that, um, getting, getting that information from our pediatrician and then our psychiatrist about what to do and how to manage this was a huge relief because right. then we knew that we could actually find supports for Joshua, not only in our day-to-day living at home, but more in the complicated um, world of school, which he can't control. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a clarifying question because you were talking about how you had a teacher that had wondered if Josh was autistic. And even though my diagnosis was a lot earlier, we had tried to keep uh, my autism a secret and the teachers knew and brought it up to my parents. I guess what I wonder from your perspective as a parent, do you appreciate when a teacher kind of asks you, maybe your child is autistic? Because I felt like being a teacher today, we were really discouraged from creating assumptions that a child might have mental illness or a neurodiverse um, diagnosis because that might offend parents. So do you feel like you appreciated that teacher's perspective and that led to... um, you know, viewing, you know, looking into something and then eventually getting that diagnosis? Or do you feel like that created some barrier of maybe feeling offended? For me personally, um, I was happy that the teacher actually had the courage to say, we think that Joshua needs some extra support. I mean, it was it was clearly manifesting itself at that point that something was going on. I mean, the outbursts, the tears, the um, angry, the the frustration level, something had to happen. So it was more manifested in school. We didn't see this behavior at home as much. But, you know, like I said, those social conditions outside of 
the area that he can control or um, was it used to just manifested itself in these big, huge behaviors. So I was more than looking back at this, I was, I was happy that that was the first step to get Joshua help. Right now, mm -hmm. fast forward to me as a teacher and having students in my classroom. So I, I teach or I taught world history to sophomores typically. That was in, and it was a mainstream kind of thing. It wasn't, um, in this case, an honors kind of thing. And I had students who I thought in the back of my head manifesting, you know, these things. It's like, wow, this guy, I think this guy could be on the spectrum. Because, you know, it was it was some of those those behaviors. So at that point, unless it was really impacting how they were interacting with other people, um, I wouldn't necessarily bring it up to a parent unless we yeah. talked about it in in uh, parent teacher conferences. If if I heard that there were some other struggles, then I might say, you know, this is these are behaviors that I think could be, you know, on the spectrum or, or things like that. And it just didn't. It just didn't um, feel like, and maybe this is a, a misconception that I had as a teacher that, oh, we got to bring this up because I'm not an expert in what autism is. I just have a child who's on the spectrum and I have that experience. And I also, as a, a mainstream teacher, but I'm not a doctor saying your kid definitely mm -hmm. has autism and you need to quote unquote fix this, right? That didn't feel that that was my role either. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that's the biggest reason why teachers today are discouraged from diagnosing kids. And again, you know, that's regardless of mental health or uh, neurodiverse learning needs. The way that I would probably handle it is rather than putting a label on the kid. And again, another issue with the labels is the idea of a spectrum. Teachers are just so limited in what they know about what an ADHD spectrum is, what an autism spectrum is, and then even going into the the conversation about how autism is seen in girls and people of color, mm -hmm. and if it's not if it's not portrayed in a very stereotypical way, that can create a lot of problems. And we certainly don't want to lead parents astray if, say, we think that a child has autism. The parents are like, "Oh, let's run with it." They spend a lot of money only for the kid to get not, not get diagnosed. The way that I would handle it, though, is I had an actually both instructional coaches I had in my time as a teacher said that you want to teach every kid as if they have an IEP in the sense that if you're teaching in a very visual way, because that's what one kid needs, that actually benefits everybody. So I would look at it more as what does the kid need rather than what is the kid's label? And if I was really feeling like something's going on, uh, I can't really, you know, pinpoint that it's ADHD or autism or something else, I'll probably address it with a counselor or a social worker or a school psychologist because they have a lot more skills to be able to assess uh, whether or not they need a 504, they need an IP, if they need an assessment for a diagnosis. I just don't think teachers are really trained in that way. And I do think that parents are more apt to listen to that possibility of their child having some undiagnosed uh, thing if it comes from a counselor, social worker, or school psychologist. I really don't think teachers should take it on themselves 
to diagnose kids and um, initiate what might be a really uncomfortable conversation with parents. I think that's a good way to think about it too. And and of course, you know, as as teachers, we do accommodations for our children in our classroom all the time, whether they're diagnosed with X, Y, and Z or not. I mean, we did, we come to have an understanding of the students in our classroom, and then we can differentiate according to their needs. And that's something that we do as teachers, I think, pretty well. All right, so yeah. moving on to um, how, how diagnosis happens. So as, as an adult, um, typically when people believe that they have, you know, some, some issues or something like that. This is kind of a self-evaluation format, which can lead to a formal evaluation. So it's important if you think you have some indications that you might be on the spectrum to get evaluated by somebody that specializes in autism, such as a counselor or psychiatrist, and some physicians, because some physicians can overlook this diagnosis, especially in women, which autism is not really typically seen um, as impacting girls as it does with boys. So getting a formal autism diagnosis can be expensive um, and there can be a wait list, but it's, it might be worth it to assess certain types of therapies and accommodations and get justification for accommodations at work if you go through this process. Other things with sensory processing disorders, that's something that's not typically formally diagnosed and it's usually, if it is diagnosed, it's in tandem with an autism diagnosis. Finally, there, uh, there may be autistic adults that self-identify without getting a formal diagnosis because of its cost prohibitive and there's a long wait list. That doesn't make them any less autistic and it means they might not have access to certain types of support or accommodations. Okay, so now we go into stigmas and stereotypes. So common stereotypes with, with autism. And this comes from uh, Autism Lear Learning Partners, which is outside of Boulder. They, they have many um, organizations all through the country, and I believe that this is the one that we took Josh to. They're very, very good. Um, and then an organization of autism research. So some, some of the stereotypes that can manifest in, in society about people on the spectrum is that they're aggressive, or they're prone to violence, or they, um, they're obsessive about certain things, at the point of being detrimental to somebody's physical or mental health. Um, another stereotype is that they're either savant smart or unintelligent, especially when it comes to social skills. Some might be portrayed as, well, they can't communicate or socialize well, therefore they can't have long-lasting relationships. They don't have emotions or they have too many emotions. They don't, can't work or be independent adults. They're rude, oblivious, they're not caring towards other people, or they're a burden to themselves um, or to their families. Mm-hmm. There was another stereotype that's actually not on our script that I thought I'd bring up. I've read a lot of books in the Highly Sensitive Person series by Dr. Elaine Aaron, and I've also read a lot of books about uh, being an empath. And a lot of these books, even though they they really talk strongly and profoundly about how autistic people feel emotionally, we are highly sensitive people. However, a lot of these books talk about how people with autism can't be highly sensitive because they are emotionally oblivious, they don't understand social cues well, and that's not true. We do understand those things. It's that we get so overwhelmed and overstimulated 
and we're also really strong internal processors that it might not externally come off as a touchy feely uh nurturing delicate um maybe perception of a highly sensitive child so that that's another important one that i want to bring up too so Another thing I'll, I'll talk about is that, and this is kind of more my personal experience with autism. I grew up in a culture that favored curing or masking autism. I actually won't say that it's a culture. I think it was more of a generational mindset about autism, basically between the 90s and the 2000s. And I was told by multiple people implicitly and explicitly that there would be collateral social loss if my autism showed. I would never have friends, a romantic partner, or a job. And to me, that is definitely a stereotype and a stigma, and it, it definitely created a huge amount of shame-based trauma for me. I felt from, gosh, I mean, as early as maybe before I had any verbal language, like being a toddler, that I had this fear that of not being my true self in order to survive and get my social needs met. And that had a huge ripple effect on my mental health. It turned me into a social perfectionist with a fixation on learning social skills. And I, I have gained all those things while being openly autistic. And when I say gained all those things, I mean I've had friends, a romantic partner, and a job. Um, in terms of my advocacy work, I am open about who I am because visibility is educational. It supports creating cultural changes that fight ignorance and stigma. It also lets me know which group of people are open and accepting towards who I am. I share all of this because I believe that combating stigmas and stereotypes is about more than proving to people what I can do despite the limitations of my autism. And that's how I lived basically my life up until probably about two years ago. It's also about recognizing that my experience with autism is also a human struggle that everyone else experiences. So as an example, I don't have an issue with reading social cues. I can read many cues very well, and some cues are a struggle, and that is something all humans struggle with. So to downplay all of the work I have done to learn about social cues by laying a stereotype on me that I will never be able to read social cues well because I'm autistic, that really takes a toll on my mental health. And it actually created a lot of imposter syndrome regarding my social emotional intelligence. And I wouldn't have been a teacher if I struggled with social skills to the point of not being successful professionally. I think that my principal noticed that when I was interviewing for jobs. You know, I, I also think, Brett, looking back on our relationship, you know, we work really well because I think you have an understanding that I have really good social skills and, you know, there are things that I need support on. And so, you know, being able to meet a person with autism where they are, that they have social strengths, they have social areas of growth, just like everybody does, and being able to humanize that with with every human experience rather than, um, you know, taking that metal, medical model of approach of no matter what I do, I will always suck at social skills. That's just not true at all.
And I think that that just goes to show how diverse the autistic community is. And so as we talk about autism, we talk about these identifying behaviors, you know, those on the spectrum might have some of these, not all of these. And just like you were saying, Nicole, you have challenges in some areas, but not in others. And so having that understanding, hence our podcast, having an understanding of what that is and the diversity within this community is super, super important. That kind of gives me to my own son interpretation of his his autism. First, he he knew obviously he knew that he was different from other other kids, but for a long time he didn't really embrace the autism label or that um, identifi- identifier. He he just knew that he had struggles, and so we kind of met him at that where he was. And so you know if he wanted to be left alone, um, that was that was fine. If he if he needed some help, you know with reading social cues, we tried to be patient and, and try to talk about, well, you know, if, if your brother and you are fighting and he's, you know, has this face, you know, this is what this means. He's saying that he's not receptive to what you're doing. And we, we actually, at one point, we kind of practiced making faces in the mirror and to, to try to, to get to, okay, if this, if this is a face that somebody's making, what do you think this means? And so there's a lot of things that we try to um, to get to to him to to be able to understand himself, and so I thought that was that was super important. And we kind of have to meet um, our autistic children where they are. Mm-hmm. All right. So as we close, just want to talk about what autism is, and we felt we accomplished that using the different autism labels, diagnosis early versus late in life, and what autism is and what it's not. And we finally talked about stigmas and stereotypes. Next week's episode, we're going to talk about um, deep dive in autistic traits. And the first episode that we're going to talk about will be explaining why people with autism avoid eye contact. You can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I talked about this earlier in the podcast. I make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. I would love for you to like, comment, and share all of those wonderful creative projects as well. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. All that good stuff. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. If you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at brettandnicole at understandingautism.info. That's Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. Now, if you're concerned about the spelling of that, it is on our website, and that is understandingautism.info. Right. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. 